0: Steps, God. So, Lord, order them today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Family, would you take God's word and join me in Matthew chapter 5 this morning? Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 and 22. Matthew 5, verses 21 and 22. After several weeks away from Matthew's gospel, let me bring us back and see if I can reset the scene for us here. Just to remind us of what we have seen over these months now in Matthew's gospel. You might recall that Matthew wrote this gospel account to a predominantly Jewish audience to say To them that Jesus of Nazareth, he is the long awaited, he is the long promised Messiah and Savior. He's writing to them to say, Jesus is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament messianic hopes. Jesus is the son of David. He is the son of God who has come to establish his righteous rule and his righteous reign and he is the one who has come to save his people from their sins. By merit then of who he is, And what He came to do, Jesus, you might recall, has a particular way in which He calls the disciples of His kingdom, His followers, His people. He has a particular way in which He desires and calls upon them to live. And so you come to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. This Sermon on the Mount is outlining for us what the kingdom of God is like. And if you are, if you say that you are an inhabitant of that kingdom, here then is what your life is going to look like. What follows after chapter 5, the first 10 verses of the Beatitudes, What follows after that, in chapter 5, throughout the rest of the sermon, is what our lives are going to be if we say that we are in Christ. The Beatitudes are these short explanations, if you will, of what our lives are to look like. The rest of the sermon, it really, in a lot of ways, it's an exposition of the Beatitudes. This is what the Beatitudes are practically going to look like in our lives. And so when you come to the second half of chapter 5, Jesus is going to get immensely practical. Not that he has not been previously, but what follows in this sermon, particularly the second half of chapter 5, brothers and sisters, I'll just tell you, it gets down into your business a bit. All right. It gets down into where we really live in the practical day in and day out. Jesus is going to address issues in chapter five, various practical topics such as faithfulness in marriage. He addresses the issue of divorce, he addresses the issue of truthfulness in our speech, he addresses the issue of mercy toward those who sin against you and compassion toward your enemies. And this morning, in chapter 5, verses 21 and 22, you see there kind of this big idea almost jumping off the page here. This may be one word that stands out above the others. The issue of murder, but he's also, beloved, dealing with, and this is what we hope to see this morning, the issues of both anger and contempt that reside in our souls And are themselves the very seed of actual murder. Jesus, the consummate preacher, is going to take us back to the Old Testament. He's going to take us back to the law of God. He's going to take us back to the sixth of the Ten Commandments to show us what God's law says and to reveal what God has always meant at the heart of that command, you shall not kill. And beloved, here's what I think is going to happen in our hearts in response to this. In our hearts, we are going to be confronted with just how desperate we are for the righteousness of Christ and how far sometimes we still have to go when it comes to crucifying The heart of murder within us. J.C. Ryle once said this about verses 21 and 22. Many thought that they had kept this part of God's law so long as they did not commit actual murder. The Lord Jesus shows that its requirements go much further than this. It condemns all angry and passionate language, and especially when used without a cause. Let us mark this well. We may be perfectly innocent of taking life away, and yet be guilty of breaking the sixth commandment. What is it then? What is here for us? Look at the text with me. Chapter 5, verses 21 and 22. You have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the courts. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Courts. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. There's a lot here, a lot for our hearts to consider. Let me see if I can frame this for us by looking at three truths here together. One of these in verse 21, the other two in verse 22. So, first truth that I want us to see together is that the letter of the law, the letter of the law is do not kill. The letter of the law, and we'll kind of think about that language in a moment, but the letter of the law is what? do not kill. Do not commit murder. Verse 21, you've heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the courts. Jesus begins with this formula almost, and it's a formula that he's going to repeat throughout the remainder of chapter 5. He will begin by saying here, he says, you have heard that the ancients were told. In in other ways, he'll begin that formula by saying maybe, you have heard it said. And then he'll follow that with, but I say to you. And what Jesus is doing in this moment, when he says, you have heard it said, He is causing us to look back to the law of God and he is calling his hearers to consider what it is that they have been taught about the law of God. He will follow it with, but I say to you, not to, as we have previously said, upend the law of God, to do away with the law of God and establish something new, but to show the people To remind His hearers that it's not merely enough to consider an external obedience to the letter of the law. But we must look to the very heart of what God always intended in the Ten Commandments in all of His holy law. To see what God intends for us. Jesus says here in verse 21, you have heard that the ancients We're told. Who are these ancients that Jesus here refers to in verse 21. It's a way of referring, we could really take this all the way back to Moses and and Aaron, those who originally were the recipients of the law of God. You recall those moments beginning in Exodus chapter 20 throughout the latter half of the book. Of Exodus, maybe more specifically, though, Jesus is referring to those ancient Jewish teachers, those ancient Jewish rabbis, the ones who took the law of God and they taught the law of God to the people of God. Maybe even a little more specifically, Jesus is referring back to the 400 years or so that that were in between the Old and the New Testaments; those years where the word of God was. Uh, where, where God was not speaking a, a, a new word, heaven was silence. And what filled the gap in that moment were these Jewish teachers, the rabbis, these ancients. And as we'll find out, there arose some problems with the way that they were reading, interpreting and living out the law of God and the way that they were calling the people of God to do the same. What were they told in verse 21? You have heard that the ancients were told, and here Jesus quotes from Exodus chapter 20, verse 13. Jesus recalls the sixth of those ten commands of the Decalogue. You shall not murder. Now at this point, Jesus' hearers there on the mountainside that day, maybe anyone that would come across the Word of God today, it might be easy for people to think, hey, so far so good. I got this living for Jesus and being a part of the kingdom thing, I've got that down pretty good because at last check, I haven't actually killed anybody. So, so far, so good, Jesus. Even these rabbis, they've been teaching, they were told they've been teaching the law of God, hey, don't commit murder. And so, on the outside looking in, just kind of surface level, everything appears to be fine. Look at the end of verse 21, what Jesus says here, whoever commits murder, he's quoting here, whoever commits a murder shall be liable to the courts. Again, you might think here, yes, that sounds right. If You commit murder, even the book of Numbers chapter 35 tells us that on the account of witnesses, seemingly in a courtroom-type setting, you might be brought to justice. You're guilty before that court. Maybe the teachers themselves are thinking, yeah, absolutely, we're saying this right. We're, We're teaching this rightly. However, it's in that phrase, at the end of verse 21, where Jesus begins to reveal that something is just a little off with the rabbis, the ancients, the way that they have been reading, interpreting, and teaching the Word of God. We might recall that murder, the unjust taking of another human being's life, that that is such an egregious sin that God takes so very seriously because it is an attempt to play God, to take life and death into one's own hands, and to end the life of one who bears the very image of God. So as a result, we read throughout God's Word where He takes this so very seriously you, you might recall in, in genesis chapter 9 verse 6 noah and his family have come off of the ark god establishes the noaic covenant with noah there and you might recall these words from chapter 9 verse 6 that if you take one's life by the hand of other human beings your life will also be taken Jesus, uh, God institutes there a, a corporate punishment, if you will. A, a penalty of death upon one who takes another's life. Because it is an affront against God and His sovereign power to declare who may live and who may die, when they may live, when they might die. And it is an affront upon another image bearer, one made in the image of God. And so God takes this very seriously. And so then I want you with that understanding in mind to look at the end of verse 21 again. This is not, you recall, a a quotation directly from Scripture. When Jesus says, whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. Jesus is here quoting from the teaching of the rabbis. While it is true, according to Numbers 35, verses 30 and 31, that if someone commits murder, they are to be tried. Testimony is to be given. Punishment is to be handed out. Here's the problem. The problem is that the ancients, the rabbis, that they had relegated murder to just simply the act of physically taking someone's life with the only accountability being to an earthly court. They stressed the letter of the law, do not take someone else's life, but they missed the heart of the law and what God always intended in that. And then more than that, the accountability that comes for taking someone's life there is a sense where that had been softened. You are guilty before the courts only. So Jesus is going to show then in verse 22 that it's not merely to a human court that one is liable, but murderers are liable to the judge of the universe, most certainly for their act of taking one's life. But now as we'll see in verse 22, liable to the judge of the universe for their anger and their contempt toward others. And so then secondly, what we see in the text, second truth for us, is that at the heart of the law is the call to do not be angry. What did God always intend? Certainly, God does not intend for us to take another human being's life. But what else at the very heart of the law? In our relationship to God and others, what does God intend? Here at the beginning of verse 22, we find that what is at the heart of the law is that we are called to not be angry with one another. Verse 22 begins, but I say to you. You've heard it said, but I. That I in the Greek is an emphatic personal pronoun. You've heard it said, but, but I'm telling you. I'm telling you. All who have ears to hear, let them hear what the Lord of heaven, what the word of God incarnate says, I say to you. Jesus, again, will not do away with the law here. He's not establishing a new code of conduct. He's driving to the heart of the law. He's explaining now in verse 22 the fullness of the law. The law of God is always meant to show people the holiness and the glory of God, and then by comparison, their own sinfulness and need for a Savior. However, the Jewish teachers, the religious leaders of Judaism, they had turned the law into a checklist. And if I can check all the boxes, then that's what will make me right with God. And so I haven't killed anybody. I'm doing great. That must mean I'm right with God. They had relegated murder only to the physical act, only being liable to an earthly court, but they missed the heart of the law, which is don't be angry with people and don't treat others with contempt. What does Jesus say going on in verse 22? But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the courts. I've heard it said, murder liable to the court. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother shall be the one who is guilty before the court. So what do we see now in verse 22? It's not just physically taking someone's life that renders one guilty before the courts, But it is also the very heart and seed of murder Anger toward another. In in verse 22, it it is as though that Jesus is peeling back the layers of the law here to get down to the hearts. And in this first layer that gets peeled back, what we find is that the issue of anger, unjust anger toward another. Just as the literal murderer is rendered guilty, so does anger in our hearts render us guilty of the same. What do we mean by the word anger in verse 22? Maybe a lot of things that we could say about anger. But anger, it is the disposition towards someone. It is the response to someone that communicates at best A temporary desire to have that person removed from your presence, and at worst, it communicates a desire to have that person permanently removed from one's presence. And so, then, anger, as we I think well know, it takes many different forms, it exhibits itself in a variety of ways in our lives I think maybe what most immediately comes to mind when we think about what is anger what does it look like we, we think about an outburst an outburst of almost rage an outburst of yelling and screaming and maybe throwing things outburst of harsh and cutting words and, and all of that would be all of that would be right anger takes other forms though Anger often looks like the silent treatments. Just not talking to someone. They come in the room and you just ignore. I'll give them the silent treatment so that they know just how angry I really am. And because we always feel justified in our anger, right? That silent treatment, it shows how actually just we believe ourselves to be. And when we do those things, whether it's the outburst of anger and harsh, cutting words, or whether it's that silent treatment, we're communicating to that other person, I don't really want you in my presence. And is that not at the heart of what it means to be a murderer? Anger looks like holding a grudge. It looks like holding on and not forgiving withholding forgiveness from someone anger looks like outright just hatefulness in one's disposition toward another at best and we could do that all day as to what what are the practical outworkings of anger but i think you get the points and at best, here's what I want us to remember, that at best, those kinds of responses, they communicate to another person, I just don't want you around me right now. And this is not to talk about the merits of, of when do we argue and how do we argue and is there time to kind of catch our breath and let a situation de-escalate. All those things are fair and on the table. But you, you get the sense, right? Right? We're not talking about that kind of moment. We're talking about that burning and seething in your soul that just doesn't want to have anything to do with that person. And maybe you don't want them permanently out of your presence, but at least temporarily, I want you gone. I don't want you here. At worst, again, these kinds of angry responses, they communicate, I hate you. And I never want you around me again. This is why John warns us in First John chapter 3, verse 15, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. The warning here, what Jesus is revealing as he peels back a layer and helps us to get down into the heart of the law What is being communicated here is beware of that burning, that seething, that all-consuming anger toward another person. Maybe they did sin against you. Maybe you were wounded by them. There are appropriate responses in moments like that. But at the heart of the law, there's a call here. If you're angry... Especially without cause. You are guilty before the courts. You are, in fact, at the very heart of it all, if not literally, but still a murderer. I would ask just all of our hearts in this moment to consider the ways that we get angry that we've expressed that anger. I, I, would, I would ask of us to consider what it is in our hearts as Jesus reveals this to us, what it is that we're really communicating. What's at the heart of what we're really saying in those moments. And that even now, that we would begin the work of crucifying that burning, seething anger to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thirdly, thirdly, still here in verse 22 at the heart of the law is a call to not treat others with contempt so at the heart of the law is do not be angry and now here sort of in the latter portions of verse 22 do not treat others with contempt Jesus continues if you're angry you're guilty before the court and Secondly, second layer, if you will, whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. You good for nothing. What's happening here? Some of your Bibles might have a a word there that might seem just very odd, very unfamiliar. The word R-A-C-A, raka, an Aramaic word. However, many of your Bibles translate that, you good for nothing. Some of your Bibles may translate that, you, you empty head. The, the idea here is that of elevating self while lowering and debasing others. It's insulting. It's positioning yourself way up here while everybody else, or, or maybe just that other particular person, is somehow down here beneath you. It's treating another person with contempt and scorning them as if they are not co-equal image bearers with you. It's a pride. and Beloved, that's at the heart of all anger. It's at the heart of all murder. So often, by the way, our angry responses come as a result of I didn't get what I was wanting, whether that be the applause of man or some kind of thing, I didn't get what I was wanting, and so I respond in anger, and at the heart of that is pride, which elevates self, and by default then debases God and everyone else in your life. To the point that you and I will absolutely be cutting and insulting with our words when we get angry toward others. Look further in verse 22. He says, thirdly, and whoever says, you fool. Whoever says, you fool. Uh, The word fool. There, in verse 22, it's the Greek word moros, from which we get our English word moron. You ever been driving down the road and somebody cuts you off in traffic? And have you ever said, you moron, raka, you empty-headed Fool. Have you ever been watching a football game on a college football Saturday? And the defensive back on your team makes a great play, and then the commentator says, wait a minute, there's a flag on the field. And that referee, just doing his job, stands in front of America and says, pass interference, number 15 on your team. If you ever in that moment in frustration, anger, you moron. You are the absolute biggest moron I have ever seen on planet Earth. Maybe it's just me. What about when someone offends you in some way? Even if it's slight, do you insult their intelligence? Do you attack their character with your words? Do you just treat them with scorn and contempt as though they are somehow beneath you? When we treat others with contempt and scorn, what does Jesus say in verse 22? We're guilty. Look in the middle of verse 22. Whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the supreme courts. Jesus is referring to that language of supreme court, referring to, referring to the Jewish Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling body. Look at the end of verse 22. Whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough, this is severe, to go into the fiery hell. To show contempt with our words is to disregard the value of someone's life. And isn't that what's at the heart of murder? Maybe the one that flies off in a rage and actually takes someone's life. Maybe they never process in their mind that they are devaluing someone's life that they are devaluing someone's eternal value and worth. But that is what's happening. Your life does not matter. And so I will take it into my own own hands and do with it as I will. That's from abortion in the womb to the oldest adult walking around on the planet. And when we also, in our anger and contempt, when we are cutting, when we are uh, contemptible towards others, when we scorn them, when we debase them, when we devalue them with our words, it is the same. It's at the heart of the law. In the heart of what it means to be a murderer. One commentator says this, he's saying, Jesus is saying that sinful anger, the kind that leads to bitter words, is in its very nature murder. And what does Jesus say at the end of verse 22? Again, I think this is a warning, a person who is born again. A person who is a disciple, a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, they cannot, they will not live in patterns of unrepentant anger and abusive speech toward others. If unrepentant, what awaits? The fiery hill. This is why John says what we read earlier in 1 John 3.15, no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. It does not mean that a person can't be saved and born again even after physically taking someone's life. It can be. But the point being that if there is unrepentant anger, burning, boiling, seething anger constantly in your soul, there are warning sirens now going off to say, hey, you're going to need to check whether or not you are even in Christ. And there's a warning here that reminds us, fiery hell awaits. Charles Spurgeon said, thus our Lord and King restores the law of God to its true force and warns us that it denounces not only the overt act of killing, but every thought, feeling, and word which would tend to injure a brother or annihilate him by contempt. You've heard that it was said but Jesus says to us, what's going on in your heart? You've heard it said, don't don't just physically take someone's life. And that's of massive importance. But Jesus is also asking and saying, hey, what's happening in your heart right now? Are you just constantly angry? Are you constantly just seething? Do cutting, demeaning, debasing, flippant words just constantly come out of your mouth toward another person or just people in general? Beware. Because if that's where you are in unrepentance, you are guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. So, what then is our motivation in fighting against anger? and contempt toward others? What is our motivation as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ? What is our motivation for putting death and contempt to death in us? Putting anger and contempt to death in us? Church, remember this. Please do not forget. Here's your motivation. We put anger and contempt toward others to death in us because God's anger toward you has been put to death at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. What what did we sing earlier? God, Your wrath has been fully satisfied. Jesus, thank you. That's why we put anger and contempt to death in us. Because Christian, God is no longer angry with you. If you are in Christ, there is no wrath. There is no anger because Jesus drank that cup of wrath down to the very last Drop. And now you know no anger from God the Father. You only know love. You only know encouragement. You only know edification and salvation in Christ. That's why you don't hold on to anger. Remember the Gospel. Remember that you have been reconciled You were an enemy of God. You were a child of wrath. But no more. You've been adopted. And you know mercy. And you know compassion. Remember that. I would also say this. What should then be our response when we remember that. Well, don't be angry. (laughs) However, we know that that's not always enough, is it? That we need to cultivate some things in our hearts so that we can keep fighting the fight against our anger. And so then, develop the discipline, beloved, of putting off your anger. Don't stew in it. Don't justify it. I know that angry outbursts feel good. At least in that moment. I know that giving them the silent treatment, man, that's going to teach them. I know you believe that. But our anger runs contrary to the gospel. And I would just remind you very practically that your anger is really only consuming one person, and that's you. It's destroying you. And so then develop the discipline of putting it off. Ephesians 4.31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Colossians 3.8, but now you also put them all aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Remember Ecclesiastes 7 verse 9. Anger resides in the bosom of fools. And so develop then the discipline of even just being slow. Slow to anger. James 1 verses 19 and 20, but let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger for because the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Be slow to anger. Here's how I think you do that. By remembering That no sin or offense committed against you is greater than the sin and offense that you've committed against God. And remembering that God is slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. Remember that. So when you're sinned against, when you're offended, when that person is driving like a maniac, or when the ref calls past interference. Be slow to anger. And remember that no offense committed against you is greater than the offense committed against God. Church, remember the Gospel. Remember that God's anger has been assuaged at the cross of Christ. And let that be the catalyst that helps you crucify your anger, your hatred, your contempt so that you begin instead to value and build up other image bearers recognizing their eternal value and worth. If you're here this morning and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, I I said this a minute ago, but just as a reminder, the Bible tells us that outside of Christ, we are objects of God's wrath. We've sinned against God, we've broken His law, and so therefore God is holy and just. In light of that, to punish. The Bible tells us that the way that God will do that is that for all eternity in a place called hell, God will pour out His white, hot, holy wrath upon all sinners, all unrepentant sinners, those that have spurned the grace of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. But there is a sweet promise of Scripture. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Whoever recognizes that Jesus alone is Savior and they call upon Him, they'll be saved. Whoever turns from their sin and their seething, burning, boiling anger and turns to the kindness of God in Christ, they will be saved. And they will become children of God while previously they were objects of God's wrath. If you don't know Christ today, that's the call to you come to Christ. Be saved through Him. Go this day from being an object of God's wrath to an object of God's grace and mercy. Let's pray together. God, every single one of us in this room, from the pulpit to the pew, Father, every single one of us, we struggle here. Maybe not all the time, but in, at various times and in various ways, we struggle here. We're offended, we're sinned against, we're not getting what we want. And and God, we we just, we, we get angry. And sometimes we let that anger boil. We let it seethe, simmer. And so God, we collectively this morning are asking for your help. Unrepentance in this issue renders us not just guilty before a human court, but guilty before the judge of heaven, the one with whom we have to do. It renders us guilty before the throne of God. It renders us guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. The place of eternal burning and outpouring of your wrath. So God, help. Help us remember the Gospel. Help us to apply the Gospel. Help us to put anger to death in us. Father, help us to remember what our sin has done to You and our relationship with You. But God, how gracious and merciful You've been to us in Christ. God, help us in this moment to identify the person or people with whom we're angry with whom we have withheld forgiveness, with whom we are holding on to the grudge, the offense. God, help us to make it right. Help us to grant forgiveness. Help us to show compassion. God, help us to be slow to anger. Help us to remember that it is, in the Proverbs, it is our glory to overlook an offense. God, I pray that in the life of Faith Family, oh God, that there would be no seed of murder, no seed of anger or contempt. So God, just by your Spirit, help us here. God, encourage us, correct us, convict us, change us, move us in the right direction. God, thank you that you love us. God, thank you that you are so slow to anger toward us. God, help us to live out now the glorious realities of that truth as we seek to be your disciples, making much of your glory, of your name. We ask and pray all this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Church family, we're going to sing.